Good evening and welcome. Our authors have just received their water, so they're ready to go. And I'm Carla Hayden, the CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to our kickoff celebration for the 2014 Adult Summer Reading Program. And some of you who are here for our authors may not have realized that the people who came in and had priority seating when they came into the poll room are the people who signed up early for summer reading. And it was really special for us because, and I have on here, um, the and we talked about it, that summer is a great time for reading and relaxing and just having that time to do it and we have expanded the summer reading club that we've had for over 80 years at the Pratt Library for Children. About 20 years ago or 15 we added teenagers and now we've got adults. So you adults can be good examples to children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whoever's younger in the house. You can read your ebooks; those count when you get your incentives. You can, however you want to read. And what you're doing is having fun yourself and being um, great examples. So we appreciate it. So the registering, if some of you haven't registered yet, it's very easy. It follows the same formula as the children's version. You just go to any Pratt Library. In fact, we have some sign-up um, things that we'll have here, and I'm looking at Becky to make sure that when you leave, you can do it if you haven't. Um, you just drop it in, or you can even submit, and we're very modern now, an online form. <laughs> there is no limit to the number of times you can enter because you're going to have a chance to read an e-reader and some other cool prizes. So we want to thank um, a very generous donor. I mentioned her at the reception, Ann Jacobson, who said for her 75th uh, birthday, she wanted people to give to the adult summer reading program. So we are very pleased. And they raised a, a significant amount of money. <laughs> so now... A couple of weeks ago, we kicked off with the children and the teens at the Govins Brands, and we had the Orioles Bird because they are going to be able to win tickets, and they were all with excitement and everything. So tonight, we wanted to give you an all-star lineup, okay? So you have Maryland's literary lineup to kick off for the adult summer reading, and so we have, and I have to, um, uh, Miss Booker came, didn't hear me say this and Tom Hall didn't hear me say this, but I just gave everybody a, that they should get their book signed kind of like just their names because you, uh, not too long from now, eBay will be, you can, you know, <laughs> do a little bit something. Just a, just a suggestion, you know, don't personalize it too much, just saying. Unless you get famous too. Then that's when it's really eBay, you know. Miss Mary, who won the lotto, okay, got her book signed by Mr. Uh, Miss, Miss Sherry Booker, Miss Dan Fast, Festerman, and Sarah Peckin. You got it. Yeah, well I wrote on that. So they're here to talk with one of the best talkers about books, and I've had the opportunity to be on his show, um, Tom Hall, with Marilyn Morning on WYPR, and he actually reads books. <laughs> so before, I, I mean, you know how it is. So, 
some people, you know, they're interviewing people, and you can tell they have not read the book. <laughs> Tom reads the books before he interviews authors, and that is wonderful. The whole thing, he has them little post-its in them and everything like that, so we really appreciate that. And in his spare time, he's the music director for Baltimore's Choral Arts Society. So let's get started, and Mr. Hall is going to get us going. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank you, everybody, and welcome. Thank you, Dr. Hayden. And uh, I am a big fan, and I know all of you are a big fan of what Dr. Carla Hayden does for this city and for this community. And Dr. Hayden reads all the books, too, let me tell you. <laughs> Everyone in the stacks of this library. Um, so what I thought we would do is begin tonight by uh, letting me introduce uh, to you each of our three authors and have them talk about their current book um, because there's, uh, you know, of course, so many great options that we have for summer reading and uh, the three authors that are represented here tonight uh, have uh, given us three terrific examples. Let me start with Cherie Booker. She is a teacher at the Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women, which is right around the corner here. As a matter of fact, the Enoch Pratt serves as the library for that school. So they come on over here. She recently won the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work by a debut author for this book, Nine Years Under, Coming of Age in an Inner City Funeral. <laughs> She was on our show. My uh, uh, co-host, Sheila Cast, had the pleasure of interviewing her, and it was such a great interview that we rebroadcast it at least once, and I think it's on, on deck to be rebroadcast again because it is a fascinating tale. Uh, so uh, let's welcome Sheree Booker and uh, have, you, have you tell us about the book. Thank you. Well, I don't need a microphone because I have a big mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I started working at this inner city funeral home in 1997. I was 15 years old. And I know you're all thinking, how did she start working in this funeral home at 15 years old? Yes. Um, well, my boss was a close family friend. And I had just lost my great aunt, who was like a grandmother to me. Um, and I was just very, I was a very curious child. Um, so I wanted to know what happened to my Aunt Mary. My boss offered me this job, and I accepted it. Now, my dad was a police officer. My mom was a school principal. I did not think that they were going to let me work in this funeral home, but they surprised me. They said, okay, go ahead. There was only one rule. Whatever you do, do not go in the basement where they do the embalming. And you know what I did. First, first trip. <laughs> and so this was supposed to be a summer job. Uh, we knew it only lasted a few weeks, but I ended up staying there for nine years. Every summer, every weekend, from my sophomore year of high school, um, through high school, through college. And when I graduated from college, I was actually running Wally Funeral Home in West Baltimore. There are two locations. They just built one. A brand new one just opened on Mount Street in West Baltimore. And there's one in Randallstown. You guys probably pass it all the time, right on Liberty Road. Um, I always say everything that I learned about life, I learned through the business of death. Um, and so when you read this book, um, you will learn about this business that's so mysterious to us all. I take you through every part of uh, this process, from the death call to the removal to the uh, embalming to the arrangements to the viewing to the funeral itself and to the burial. I will take you through every part of this. 
But you get to uh, kind of have a, a peek at my misadventures as, as well. You see me get in a car accident at McDonald's with a dead body in the back of the <laughs> uh, you, you see me fall in love with my boss's son, and I'm not going to tell you how that ended up. Um, you have to read the book. Um, and so you, you get to see me uh, even down to dealing with my mother's own cancer. So even when I'm dealing with death, I'm dealing with it at work, I'm dealing with it at home, and... Um, it just fascinates me in this way, and I get stuck in this world, and I just take you on this journey. So um, if you have a copy of it, I think you'll enjoy it. And those of you who have read it already, uh, I think you can vouch for me. It's, it's a pretty good read. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, we, we are so good in this country thinking about birth. You know, what to expect when you're expecting, and there's the raft of books that you can get if you're pregnant or if you're about to become a parent. But we, we tend to avoid the issue of death you know, no, no one wants to talk about death, but we all have to deal with it. And, th and that was my reason for writing this book, that um, we have to entrust our loved one with these strangers, literally. You know, we're, we're with our mom, our dad, our husband, our brother, our sister, and we have to send them to these people. We don't know them from anywhere. And for the next, you know, 48 or 24 hours to seven days, our loved one is with them. And I wanted people to understand, um, at least at the in the business I worked in, we treated everyone like they were our own loved ones. Um, and it was that important to us. And I wanted people to understand. I know you hear the stories, the crazy stories in the news and the ridiculous things that happens, but... 90% of funeral directors, 90% of funeral homes, they do care about your loved ones, and, and they, they really do treat them with, with care. And I wanted people to, to understand that. Um, and I, I apologize in the book for taking that body to the McDonald's through the drive-thru. Uh, I, was, I, was I was only about 19 years old. That was my fault. Don't blame it on the funeral <laughs> That's great. Well, our next author is Dan Fesperman. Dan is a former journalist who's with the Baltimore Sun for many, many years. His travels... Uh, in that capacity, took him all around the world, uh, more than 30 countries, including three war zones. Um, and he has, uh, since leaving the Sun several years ago, he has written several novels. One is called, uh, his, his most recent one that's published and available now, is called The Double Game. It takes place in Dubai. It's a really fascinating read. Europe. Europe. Oh, oh, this is the Europe one. All right, yeah. then there's another one okay. that takes place in Dubai. I get, he, he's written so many, I get them mixed up. <laughs> he has a new one coming out. It's not quite available yet. It's coming out in August. It's called Unmanned. Um, but Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the double game? This is uh, a person about a person who loves spy, spy novels. novels. Yeah, it, it's a spy novel which is very much about spy novels and the love of them and a search for the truths that are buried within spy novels. Because a lot of people don't know this, but some of the best spy novelists uh, that are going and and in the past as well were spies themselves, either for Britain or for the United States. John Le Carré is one example. And what inspired this book, uh, it, the inspiration, I guess, originally goes back to many years ago. Uh, to It was a recent event that inspired it. But first, the background, in 1985, when I was working at The Sun, uh, John Le Carré came to give a lecture at Johns Hopkins. And uh, they said, well, who would like to interview him? And I said, oh, I would, I would, I would. And I remember the two people who got to interview him, I was with The Evening Sun at the time, and the Morning Sun writer who got to interview him, who also went on to write novels about espionage, just as I did, was Stephen Hunter. And so the two of us ended up with an AP reporter around a long oak table in this nice, uh, stately academic room at uh, Johns Hopkins. 
and talked to this guy for three hours, and he was fantastic. And the spy novelist in my book is American, but he sort of is the same way in that he talked in complete paragraphs. You know, it was as if everything he was saying, even off the cuff, had been completely edited and combed over and was perfection right out of his mouth. And you felt very envious. You felt like, well, writing for this guy must be almost like dictation from himself. And so that stuck with me for a long time, and I was very impressed by that, and it all made me like his books even more. And then about three years ago, I was researching, uh, I was doing some research about early CIA history, and for some reason that made me come upon an interview done with John Le Carre by the Guardian newspaper in Britain, in which he sort of admitted at one point that when he was a spy for Britain, he had actually kind of toyed with the idea at one time of not really being a double agent, of, but of perhaps working for the other side just a little bit, just because... Not because he was disloyal, not because he wanted the money, but because he wanted to see what it was like. And what better way to see what they did on the other side than to work for them and to test your own loyalties and to see how they dealt with the same things that he did every day. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, what if he had made that kind of admission in my interview? How would I have handled it? Especially if it was, say, off the cuff later and he'd had a few to drink or something like that and, <laughs> and was confiding in me, less as a journalist than as someone he wanted to talk to. And how would I have handled that? What would that have done in my view of him? And what would that have done? Uh, would I have wanted to know more? And so in my book, there is an American writer, a famous spy novelist, which I created, even though I've gotten a bunch of emails of people saying, why can't I find his books? Um, and I explore the ideas of this, the, the, the young journalist who interviews him and then years later tries to find out if maybe he too actually was a double agent uh, because he had grown up loving spy novels and had been the son of a diplomat and lived in Cold War capitals like Berlin and Prague and Budapest when all of these novels were taking place and in the very places they were set. And so he was always reading them with the mind of, did this really happen? Did any of these scenes actually take place, especially if they were written by real spies? And I've since talked to some real spies that say uh, they often look to espionage novels far more than nonfiction accounts of the CIA for the real truth about what it's like to be a spy. They say, that's where all your real truths are. And I've talked to spies who've written novels who say, yeah, I put real things in there and just change the names and disguise them. So you often find more truths there. And so the whole idea of truth and fiction and how they intersect and how you often find more truth in fiction than in nonfiction uh, fascinated me. And that's what got me started writing this book. It seems to me that working for the other side a little bit yeah, it's kind, of, it's, kind of like, yeah. it's kind of like being a being little, a little bit pregnant. pregnant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, I mean, uh, talk about drawing the line. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, which is why he did draw the line and didn't do it. And, and uh, whether this author did or not, you know, who knows? But uh, you can't really. Once you go in, also uh, they have a way of roping you in to do more because once you've done a little, they have you over a barrel and sure. you've betrayed them, and they can always uh, find ways to betray you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Great stuff. Sarah Pekinen is here as well. She lives in Bethesda. She's a columnist for Bethesda Magazine and a former reporter for the Baltimore Sun. She and Dan overlapped there for a little while. Uh, her fifth novel is called Catching Air. Her novels are internationally acclaimed. They're written up in places like People Magazine and Oprah and all these great places. Um, 
Uh, and uh, this novel concerns uh, two couples, two brothers and their wives, who uh, go to Vermont to open up a B&B. So, you know, chaos ensues. <laughs> so, Sarah Packard, tell us a yeah. little bit more about your latest one, Catching Air. Well, you know, I was thinking when Dan was talking that it was good. Uh, while I was working at The Sun, that I also didn't go to this meeting with uh, Jean Le Carre because I would, probably would have written a spy novel like Dan so, <laughs> instead of women's fiction. Um, so, yeah, this story is about two couples. They're uh, women who are married to brothers. They move to Vermont to open up a bed and breakfast, and a very mysterious woman comes to work for them. It's clear this woman is running from something, but what they soon realize is that she's also running from someone. And for me, it's, it's funny because I had a meeting with my publisher a couple of years ago, and she said, you know, there's this theme that runs through all of your books, and I tried to look very intelligent and, and said, yes, you know, <laughs> yes, there is. Tell me more about it. <laughs> and she said, you know, your first book was about sisters. Your second was about a married couple. Your third was about new friends. Your fourth was about old friends from college reuniting. And all of your books circle around the important relationships in a woman's life because women have such interesting, rich, complicated relationships, and you've been kind of chipping away at that. And so this book is about sisters-in-law, and I think um, eventually I'm going to write about a woman's relationship with her checkout person at the giant, or you know, <laughs> I'm going to run through all the serious relationships and get to the minor ones, but... <laughs> But this is about, you know, marrying somebody and suddenly having another family that you may not know well. You know, maybe you've met them a couple times and now you're, you're with them. You're bonded, so, um, or not. So that's the premise. So one of the things that fascinates me, Sarah, is the, the, the cover art in this book is really terrific. It shows a picture of a woman walking, you know, when you see her from the back. And the cover art on all of the other uh, novels... Uh, include pictures of women from the back. You see the, the backs of women. their heads. Yes. Right? There's, you never see the faces of anybody in these novels. So I want, is that purposeful or does that just sort of happen? I think they all have mustaches and that's why we're not. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, the idea behind this, and it is, it is my father calls it my army of faceless women. Um, the idea behind it is that you as a reader can imagine anyone's face on there. You can imagine your own, a friend's. You can decide what this character looks like. So it's sort of an artistic choice. Yeah, yeah. And Sherry Booker, let's talk a little bit about um, how you how you organize, uh, which you did so so beautifully, uh, this this memoir of this you know very interesting, funky, you know, <laughs> different kind of job, uh, which, as you say, you stuck with for the longest time. Um, you'd had all those incredible experiences. How did you set about the task of saying, okay, here's how we're going to present this, here's how we're going to put this together? It was very tricky. When I started writing this book, I was 23 years old. I was in grad school at Goucher, um, and this was my thesis. Um, ideally, uh, I wanted to write it in chronological order. So um, the issue was always just having too much information. So when you're writing about nine years and I have all of these stories, it's like, what are the most important stories to include um, 
in this book, uh, I only have to write 150 pages for, for grad school. So what are the most important stories? Is it the 600 pound man that we have to remove from the, the row home on Appleton Street? Um, is it the time we mixed up the bodies? Um, you know, do I want it to be funny? Do I want it to be serious? Do I want to write about the time that I, I had to stop crying when my boss caught me crying about everything? Um, and so what I did was I started writing a timeline and just writing down everything. And I just picked what felt right. Uh, um, then, somewhere along the way, um, I got fired. If you read the book, you'll find out. Um, and then I was like, uh, I hate this book. I don't want to write about it anymore. I don't, don't want to be involved in it. I, I spent nine years with these people. I don't want to spend another year. Um, and so I rearranged everything. And so I said, you know, I don't want this to be um, so much about the people anymore. So I, I broke it down, and the book was uh, arranged by the process. So the first chapter was about the death call, and then the second chapter was about the removal, and then the third chapter um, was about uh, the embalming process, and the fourth chapter was about the arrangements, and the fifth chapter was about the funeral, et cetera. And um, it really it worked out that way. It gave me a freedom to kind of move around and get around, um, and I took out all of the personal things and everything. So when it was time to... Uh, to get an agent, uh, and this agent really wanted me, I gave her my manuscript, and she basically said, um, this is a great book, but I want everything that you took out of the book. So she wanted me to put it back in all the relationships. What's going on with your family? Where's Mr. Wally? Um, did you date his son? He sounds very handsome. Did anything go on? So I had to go back and reconstruct this book again um, and move things around. And so the, the final draft of this book is in chronological order. It starts with the day that my Aunt Mary dies until the day that I leave the funeral home. Um, and so I just picked the stories that were most meaningful to me. Um, the great thing about this was that I had stories that I would tell over and over again. That's how I started writing this book because people always say, you should write a book about this. You know, that, that's, that's my, um, I'll sit down to dinner and I'll tell all these stories and everyone wants to know more. And so I just started writing about it and that's kind of how it ended up. It's nine years under. Yeah. And of course, relationships are such an important part of all three of your, your work. I mean, Dan, as a reporter, one of your big jobs is to go in and sort of figure out who's telling the truth. You know, who's real here? Who's not for real here? Uh, and it's the same thing with the characters in your novels. They have, yeah. to, they have to make decisions about people's credibility, people's sincerity, uh, and, the, and the potential for people to be uh, traitorous and, and, and bad. Yes, that, and, and it's also very much a father-son book, too, uh, this novel, because the boy, who's now an adult, and his father was a diplomat all those years, in the course of his work, he begins to wonder what his father's role was in all this as a diplomat, because sometimes diplomats are a lot more than that, and he starts to wonder that about his own dad. And uh, he, he discovers a, a sort of a double life going on at a lot of different levels with different people in his life. So... Um, yeah, it, it is very much about the relationships between truth and uh, hiding the truth and who can you trust. And, you know, with the revelations of uh, Mr. Snowden and, and all that being in the news, and just a few weeks ago we heard that, yeah. you know, uh, the U.S. government has discontinued the, process, the, the practice of uh, using uh, people who were giving out vaccines in Pakistan as yeah, yeah. Uh, spies, spies, you know, and you know, giving out the vaccines is a good thing. Spying is probably on some level a good thing in terms of the intelligence that the United States needs to needs to acquire. But is it good to have both of those two things, you know, combined? It's, it's brought the whole program into discredit. Some very some very tricky ethical ethical issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Sarah, you're you're uh, you know. 
uh, obsession with all the relationships <laughs> is really is terrific. And, and I wonder, are, are your friends like really afraid to have dinner with you <laughs> for, for, for fear that they will end up in one of these books and, and not portray beautifully? <laughs> or the checkout woman a giant. Right, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, it's funny because um, we, I'm sure we can all agree, like we, we don't put the exact person in a book. Like, we might be inspired. We kind of look for little shiny things, like, you know, uh, a quirk that somebody has here, a sentence that we, we find here. And it kind of, I always describe it as sort of going through a kaleidoscope. It ends up looking very different when it comes onto the page. Um, but although, having said that, there are a few people who have read my books and said things like, I can't believe you didn't like those blueberry muffins I made you when you were pregnant. <laughs> You had a horrible cook who made blueberry muffins. And, you know, so people do take the little things quite personally that are in no way intended to be. And, and, and if you ever write a novel, you can write in those people who fired you and yeah. kill them off. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, that's the funny thing. So I'm like, from here on out, I am definitely writing fiction because I need freedom. Um, I remember writing this book and I was writing about my mom and, and her, she had multiple myeloma, which is a, a cancer. And so I say in the book, my mom has cancer. And she's like, I mean, can you find another word for cancer? I'm like, mom, I don't even know any other word for cancer, you know? And so it gets so tricky. Um, when people see themselves on the page, um, any observation that you say, uh, it makes them feel uncomfortable. So ideally, everyone says, am I in your book? Am I in your book? They're excited until they see themselves on the page. <laughs> you didn't like my tie. It was too blue. It was too, you know, and so it, it gets very tricky. So. Yeah, do you think that, that they don't like that because of the way that they think other people are going to see them or that maybe they don't like the way you're seeing them? Or is it a combination? Um, I, I think that it, it's both. I think that it's, oh, my God, other people are reading this book and you said this about yeah. me. And then, two, you felt that way about me yeah. this whole time. And so um, I think it's a little bit of, mm -hmm. of, of both. Yeah. That's what I found out. Well, you know the old advice about writing. Because even when you're writing fiction, you think, if your parents are alive, you think, well, you write a scene maybe that's either sexual or violent or has dubious yeah, ethics of the main character, and you're yeah. thinking like, oh, my mom's going to think this is me. And, <laughs> and so the advice, I forget who it was, but there was some famous advice who basically told all writers is write as if your mother is dead. And so you'll have the courage to just write honestly, no matter how grim, how bad, how graphic. It gets very tricky. When my book first came out, and I have a sex scene in this book, so my dad, he was so excited about this book and he's reading it every day and so every day I'm at the house and I'm literally like dad don't you have anything else to do oh I think Dancing with the Stars is on every day I was trying to take the book and hide it and he would come back and he's like where's my book I was on this page and I'm just like oh my god like I was just so embarrassed for myself and for him like oh my god when he I was going to rip the pages out of the book and everything I just didn't know how to handle that he hasn't said anything about it to this day so I'm just gonna you could move the bookmark ahead <laughs> what was the reaction of uh, the people you work for when they when they read because the reactions of people you know that that are are either you know the people that characters are based on or you know if it's a, a, a true memoir oh, they they can be very that's that's tricky yeah. once um, you put it in writing like this and it gets this kind of this kind of attention you know there are NAACP image award right yeah this, this is really hiding under a basket <laughs> right so you know here's the thing here's the great thing about publishing. Uh, the good thing is that they have a whole legal department. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> so that's the good thing about publishing, that they will cover you. Um, what I will say is that I was very upfront and honest about this book from the moment I started writing it. Everyone knew that I was writing a book. 
Um, I interviewed everyone for my book because I, I didn't want to trust my memory. So I'm going there and um, uh, I'm asking, did this happen or why did you react this way? Or I, I wanted to be fair in what I was writing because I, I care about these people. I love them to death. Um, but they got nervous. So imagine that someone who's like family, who's very close to you, um, they know all of your business. They know every single thing about you, what you love to eat, what you dislike, uh, where you like to go, who you dated, etc. And they say that they're writing a book. Terrible. A true book. Yeah, yeah. And then you see it on Amazon and you can pre-order it. Um, you're going to feel some type of way. And so there was a little bit of angst in the beginning, um, to be honest. They, they were a little bit nervous. And I completely understood that. I completely understood that. Um, now they're receptive to it. And they love the book. And they um, they love the way they were written about in the book. Everyone maybe except for Brandon. He's, he's warming up to it. Um, but but they accepted it. You know, and, and I, I understood that when someone's writing a book about you, and I just think about my life. If someone told me, you know, what if one of my students said that they were going to write a book about me, I would just probably cringe and like, oh my God, what are they going to write um, about me in that book? So I understood the angst. And I wanted to be very careful as well because I knew I was writing about a business. So that was the other thing that was sure. tricky for me because sure. I wasn't just writing about people and my personal experiences. I, I knew I took a risk talking about driving this body through the McDonald's drive-thru. I keep using this example because it's so funny to me. Um, I knew I was taking a risk, and I didn't want that to affect um, the business. I didn't want people to say, you know, my negligence had anything to do with this business because they're a great business. Um, but one of the things when I was uh, working with my publisher, we were fighting to change the names. It was kind of like, well, if I change the names, I would basically have to set the story in a different city. Um, because it would be so obvious. Um, this father-son funeral home, this it's an African-American funeral home, father-son funeral home um, in Baltimore. The son went to high school with me. It would be easy for you all, journalists or anyone else, to figure out yeah. who I was talking about. So it didn't really make sense to change the names. And I, I wanted this story. It was very true to Baltimore, and I wanted to leave it. Um, you know, set in this city, and so that's why I didn't change the names. Um, you know, I went back and forth about it, but at the end of the day, I knew that I was writing from an honest place, and so um, I was okay with leaving it the way that it was. And then your books, you know, have have such complicated twists and turns in them. Um, I always wonder when when you write books like this, do you chart out, you know, sort of what's going to happen? Uh, you know, so that you, when you start at point A, you know that by the time you get to point B, all this other stuff has to have occurred? I chart out some, some of it. It's different with every book. Uh, with every book, I do some outlining with some heavy outlining, uh, chronologies, character chronologies, character bios that I don't even use half the stuff sometimes. But it's different with every one. But as far as the plot and all the twists, uh, I, I like to say that I think of the plot as an alphabet. I always know A and I always know Z. So I know where I want to end up. And maybe when I start a book, I know seven or eight of the other letters, or sometimes 11 or 12, but they're different every time, and I end up having to figure out kind of organically as I go along and what the characters are doing, where they're going. And, and does it change as you go along? Do it does change, the, the, yeah. The arc of the story will, uh, will It change. does. Sometimes I'll have, I'll be two-thirds of the way through, and I'll have second thoughts about where something is headed, and I'll have to backtrack and 
you know, throw out about six different things I've done, I'll just think that doesn't work for that character and I'll redo mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, how about you? I mean, structure in a book is so, so important to keep the reader's interest, to keep, you know, a person involved. What's going to happen next? Um, I mean, do you work closely with an editor? Do you uh, sort of give them the, the manuscript and they say, okay, that's terrific, Sarah's done, you know, on to the next one? How, how does it oh, yes, I you? wish it worked like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a similar analogy. It's not the alphabet, but um, I describe it, I apologize to the men, like driving somewhere with certain men where you know where you're supposed to go, you know where you're starting, but you're going to get lost. You're not going to be allowed to ask for directions. You're going to get really pissed off at each other, and it's going to take a very long time and be more complicated. Um, That's been my experience with driving (laughs) with my husband. So it's similar. Um, But, yeah, I do have – I've had the same editor for all six books. We just – we're working on the six right now, and we have a a really great relationship. Um, You know, I generally write the draft, turn it in, and then she'll call me, and we'll discuss it on the phone. She'll send me an edit letter. I'll revise it, and then sometimes there's just a little bit more tweaking and revising. Um, it, it depends on the book. Certain books need more work than others, um, but you know, a lucky few have gotten through with, with minor revisions. Because so. mm-hmm. oftentimes the hardest part about writing is getting rid of you know, those precious paragraphs of prose that you just adore and you know they're going to please don't make me cut that not that part but in your case in a way it was kind of an opposite thing where all of a sudden your editor is saying oh let's put, put some more stuff in you know, how did that work is, is it hard to, to cut out those things that you've just worked so hard on you oh, crafted them so beautifully it's devastating at least for me um, it's like leaving when your you, children or something when you it's spend a, a whole thing. whole day maybe even a whole week working on one paragraph and it it looks perfect, it sounds perfect to you, and then you get those edits back, and it's gone, you know. Um, yeah, it, I, I lost a lot. Um, but I, I feel like it strengthened the final project, so sure. I'm, I'm okay with it. You know, And I always feel like when material is cut, I can always use it somewhere else in another story mm-hmm. or another place, and that I can come back to it if necessary. So you, you know? save it. You got it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you have another book in the offing at the moment? I do. So um, I'm thinking about, I, I love writing about my real life experiences. So I am thinking about writing a young adult novel based on a all-girl charter school. Uh, in inner city Baltimore <laughs> right around the corner from the uh, press <laughs> maybe on a street called Park Avenue Franklin Street something like that um, and uh, writing about these four girls and their lives in the inner city and what it's like and of course they all have this great uh, very beautiful fly teacher uh, who, who happens to write books uh, and they're all, they all have this weird relationship with this teacher. So this, uh, you know, the one girl thinks the teacher is dating her dad. Um, the one girl uh, hates this teacher. Um, the one girl wants to be like this teacher. So just all these obsessions with, with this teacher and the things that go on in their lives. Are the teacher's former employees who fired her killed in an accident? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to wait until we get to see. <laughs> Now, that'll be a fun book to uh, share with your students. Yes. Yeah. yes. There's me. There's me. Exactly. So then I'll go through that. Yep. <laughs> and, Dan, you've got to you know, invent these people by whole, by whole cloth. Yeah. Uh, how do you come up with your ideas for your books? Because your books have been set in very uh, disparate places and yeah. you know, different kinds of characters. Uh, well, some of, them have been, some of them have been set in places I've traveled for the sun. Uh, a couple of them were set in the Balkans. I was there during the war. One was set on the Afghan-Pakistan border right after 9-11. One was set at Guantanamo, which I'd been to long before it was a prison. I went down there 
when Jimmy Carter staged some military operation down there, I had to go down there and cover it and found it such an interesting isolated place because it was so secluded and they couldn't go into the rest of Cuba and all that. And then when the prison was open there, I was fascinated. And I went down and spent three days, not in the prison, uh, <laughs> but uh, touring it as so much as, and talking to interrogators and whatnot. I ended up interviewing a lot of the interrogators when I got back who were a lot more open with me when they weren't down there. Mm-hmm. So it just comes from everywhere. It's usually from places I've been or places I'm interested in, like Dubai I'd never been to, but I went there because... I thought Dubai was so bizarre that I wanted to go there and set a book there. Yeah, yeah. And Sarah, how about you? Do the ideas for your books uh, come in here? I, once I interviewed Frank DeFord, uh, who's written a bunch of novels as well as he, he does a weekly uh, essay on NPR about sports. And I say, you know, do these, is this easy for you? It seems so facile when you hear Frank read these essays. And he said, the hardest part is coming up with the idea. Once I have the idea, I can write it really quickly. Um, how about you? Is that the hardest part for you as well? You know, I, I'm, I don't have a lot of trouble with ideas. It's hard sometimes to know what's the right idea. What idea is going to kind of fizzle out over 50 pages? What idea you can sustain for three or 400 pages for a book? So that's a real challenge, I think. Um, but I always think of, of the ideas, they kind of simmer. I don't have the lightning bolt moment where, you know, like J.K. Rowling talks about, I was on a subway and just started, you know, writing. And then, you know, Harry Potter, two stops later, I'd written the seven-book series. You know? um, <laughs> That is not my experience. It's, it's more like a stew, where I know I want to throw in some different ingredients. Like this book, I wanted it to be a little atmospheric. I wanted there to be a lot of snow and everybody to feel a bit claustrophobic because they had the tension of these relationships. I knew I wanted to write about sisters-in-law because I hadn't explored that yet. I knew I wanted an element of mystery, um, so the mysterious woman came in. So that all kind of blends together. And your subconscious works on it as you do other things. I I actually will tell my subconscious, like, work on this problem right now. And then go to sleep or go for a run. And um, it doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. Sometimes you you get kind of surprised with where the story goes. And for me, that's probably the most rewarding part when you think you know what you're going to write about. And then it, it takes on a life of its own sometimes and surprises you. And, and that is pretty incredible. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's pretty wonderful. Do you write on a schedule? Do you write in the same place every day? Do you write at the same time every day? I have three boys. So <laughs> <laughs> nothing in my life is on a schedule. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, I've tried doing different things. I've tried the index card thing. And, you know, my kids were over at the dining room table. And my, my then three-year-old was, like, you know, playing with them all and messing them up. Um, so I, I tend to write on the fly. I bring my laptop everywhere. I write. I, I wrote part of Catching Air on the sidelines of the soccer field, um, the, you know, the, the edge of the pool kind of, you know, sitting in a chair and watching my kids play. I write anywhere and everywhere, and I think part of that is the training we had as journalists. I mean, when I started at The Sun, I shared a computer with another reporter, and we'd be like, okay, which, which one of us has a tighter deadline? Because you win the computer, and the other one would have to run around the room and look for a computer. And you'd be typing, and the city editor would bark in your ear, like, what's another word for corruption? And then people would start shouting, and it's just kind of chaos. So you learn to write in these extreme circumstances, and I think that, that actually serves us really well, partly because I could never say to our gruff city editor, like, my muse isn't here yet. You know, I, I, I can't turn in my story. <laughs> On the, fact, the zoning board yeah. meeting, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. So, you know, you learn to, to write every day, even when the writing doesn't 
feel when you're writing and you think, oh, this is horrible. You know, these sentences are awful. Nobody's going to publish it. Something keeps you going, and and you keep um, keep those words coming every day, and that kind of discipline. I'm I'm really grateful to the sun for. Yeah, and Sheree, you wrote nine years under, you know, while in graduate school, <coughs> writing this new uh, YA fiction while you're teaching. Teaching is exhausting in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, will, are you going to be? Do you anticipate you know, keeping a particular schedule? You know, every morning from seven to eight thirty. I'm a little different. You know, I don't I don't have the discipline that they have, um, unfortunately, and I, I suffer from chronic procrastination. Um, and so what I typically do is if I don't have a real deadline, I'll give myself a deadline. And when I have a deadline, I'm not going to write until either the day before or the week before that deadline, um, and then I'm going to get it done. So use like even typically when I was in grad school, um, I wrote the original version of Nine Years Under. Um, in a week, wow. and, and I won the departmental it's award amazing. for that. So wow. let me, I'll just tell this story. Okay. This is my you can't shame. say you're not disciplined if you did that. That's this amazing. This is my shame story um, because I was kind of beating myself up about it, about my process, because I know that I procrastinate. I know I wait till the last minute, um, but I've learned that this is just my process and it mm -hmm. works for me. So I was in grad school for two years, and you had to have 150 pages to graduate, and I only had about 40 good pages. So um, I'm at the end. I'm in South Africa, living in South Africa, just loving it up, uh, chasing elephants, everything. Um, and so it's one week before my manuscript is due, and I email my uh, professor, and I'm like, uh, "Can I get an extension?" And he's like, no, I'm going on sabbatical. You have to turn in what you have. So I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to go back to the United States. My parents are going to kill me. I don't know what to do. So I went to the mountaintop, and I wrote 100 pages in a week. Wow. And they were terrible pages, terrible pages. You know, Anne Lamott calls it shitty first drafts. Um, and it was just horrible. You know, these are unedited pages, haven't been touched, anything. And I'm just like, whatever. It's 150 pages. I have the count. Um, I turn it in, and my um, professor's like, oh, this is pretty good. This is better. Like, what, this is great. And so you had to turn it in for the departmental. Um, everyone had to turn in a piece, and I ended up winning. And I'm like, did they read this? <laughs> what is going on? Um, and so I always, I feel like this is the question that everyone asks on an interview, and I want to say something, like, really, really great and tell everyone that I sit down and I get up in the morning and I wake up and I have you know great breakfast and I go for a run and I sit down and write but I don't um, and I'm and I'm sorry it just that's just how it works for me um, I'm also a poet so um, a lot of times people will commission me to to write for them and I will wait until that day of so if you ask me to write a poem for your wedding a year from now I'm not gonna write it until the morning of and just, just ask the day before yeah, yeah. And you're, you're gonna love it and it's gonna be great but uh it's just I don't know that's just how my mind works so I love that story because I think too often we can kind of get stuck as writers and we can think I need to have the perfect setting I need to have a cone of silence I need to be on a retreat I need to have my latte just so with a little design on top before I can write and you can overthink it and you can really kind of paralyze yourself to the point where you're you know you become very self-critical and when you got into that flow for a week and you just threw but down those words I will say this over over those two years I wasn't just wasting time away I was thinking about mm -hmm. it you know I would jot down notes I would write down things I had outlined it so yeah. it, it wasn't just off the top of my head I wish I was really that great um but you know I, I had thought about it I mapped it out in my head and I was just able to 
um, get it all out in that particular time frame. So I, I do think about things. I'll draw pictures. I'll sketch it out. And I mean, my mind is just crazy. Um, but it, it just works for me. And I was kind of beating myself up because I'm like, my friend Maggie, she's so disciplined. She gets up. She writes every day. She's just so brilliant. And, you know, and I'm like, nope, I'm not going to write today. I'm just going to sit here and. I mean, Dan, your your you know long experience as a as a journalist, yeah. um, obviously you know uh, informs the, what you write, how you write. But um, the, the a, a novel and fiction is just such a very different animal. Do you, do you find yourself having to sort of you know, bifurcate your brain and say, you know, I'm I'm not a reporter now. I'm I'm making this stuff up. Is is it a different it, exercise? It takes some getting used to the idea. As odd as it sounds, because writing fiction is so liberating. If you've been a journalist, you, you're not chained to your notebook anymore. You're not having to go back and check every little thing every ten minutes. But it takes some getting used to being in in that much control of the material. Because you'll start out with a character. You'll say, okay, he's age fifty. He's this. He's that. And 20, page later, 20 pages later, this happened more on my first books, you're thinking, God, it would, it would work so much better if he was a little bit younger. And he said, well, so make him younger. It's, just, it's like nobody's going to know. It's not like you have to put in the book, originally this character's 50, and I apologize for making him 42. Yeah. Well, as a reporter sometimes, yeah, it's yeah. so much better if this, if this the book comes with corrections. a different party. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't write that down. But, but when she was talking about uh, procrastinating and, and, or maybe not being able to, there was this great line from Gertrude Stein a long time ago about writing and being blocked and all that. It said he, he had the syrup, but he couldn't make it pour. And it's it's kind of like that. You have all the material, and it's in there, and it percolates. And so work is getting done, even when you're not putting it on the page. And then when you do reach that moment when you can make it pour, sometimes you, know, you get a few gallons a minute. Yeah. Well, we have about 15 minutes left, and we'd love to have some questions from, from some of you. Uh, by the way, how many of you have read uh, Cherie's book, Nine, Nine Years Under? Good, good bunch, yeah. Don't give it away, I'm not done. Okay, 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 okay. That, that's, right. that's right. It's just like watching Netflix, no, we're not going to right, How about Catching Air? Has anybody had a chance to read it? This is just out, right? I mean, yeah, I can't read it. You haven't had much time. How about Double Game? Anybody? Yeah, these are fun, right? Great. Well, if you have any questions for our, for our panel. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, good evening. Very good presentation. I know it's an adult reading a kickoff program, but all of us know some young people who are aspiring to be writers and follow your lead and so forth. So if you had a young people uh, present, uh, what would you say to them? What are some of the skills would you like them to acquire? You know, because this is a changing world. It is uh, a lot of things to see and do and depends on their interests. What would you tell them? You're the teacher. You're the teacher. What I tell my girls is to read everything. Um, I, I have some really great writers there. And so I always encourage them to read um, in the genre that they that they like so that they can get familiar. Um, when we're writing, when we're pitching books and um, we're writing proposals, they're always asking us, you know, what what is this book similar to, or what can you compare it to? So it's important for us, even when we're writing a book, to be able to say, well, you know, this is like uh, Mary Roach's Stiff, or it's not like Stiff, or this is different, or you know. So I'm always encouraging young people to read, and then I'm always encouraging all people to write. Um, I get people all the time who say, I want to write a book. I want to write a book, and I'm like, did you start writing? And what do they say? 
No, right? And so I'm always saying, just write it down. Um, the, everything else is easy. You can find someone to edit it. You can find someone to publish it. You can always fix it. But if you have nothing, then it's nothing I can do. And I can't help you and I can't say anything. So um, if you have a story in you, you have to write. Um, and when you want, when you get stuck, when you procrastinate, when you don't have it, then you have to go and read and find the inspiration inside of a book. I, I would also say be a good listener because uh, so much about dialogue, the way people tell stories, their manner of speaking, if even to the point when you're in a cafe or a restaurant or in a park, uh, not noticeably eavesdropping on people, but look, look at the way people interact with other people when they're tense, when they're frightened, when they're happy, uh, what they do physically, what they say, how they express themselves. Be a good observer and a good listener, and that'll help you more than anything. Yeah, and I would just add to that, maybe keep a journal. You know, get in the habit of writing down your thoughts. and yeah. Definitely. Yeah, uh, several novelists that I know have a, a ubiquitous uh, notepad in their, in their pocket, right? And it always gets you nervous when you're hanging around with them and they, they take it out <laughs> and put it back and they don't say anything. What have I done? <laughs> what about the fact that the publishing industry has just changed so dramatically? Now we've got this uh, terrible uh, kerfuffle between Amazon and uh, Hachette, the, the publisher. They're, they're basically you know, making it impossible to buy uh, an entire list of books by a publisher because they're having a, a disagreement about pricing for these e-books. And so uh, when things are available, you, know, you can read a book on your phone, you can read a book on your iPad, you can read a book uh, in so many different ways. Does that change the way you write? Does it change your interaction with your editors and your, and your publishers? Does it change your audience? Um, what, what are the effects on you as the, the people sitting there actually writing the content, as they call it now? I don't think it changes the way I write. I don't think it changes the way most people write. Uh, I have heard some people say they feel a little bit more pressure uh, simply because people have less time to read. They feel a little more pressure to to be a little less leisurely in the beginning of their books, especially if you're a, like, I'm a genre writer, and if you're a genre writer and if you don't have somebody dead or threatened within the first 20 pages, they're probably going to say, well, you know, is this a literary novel? What's your problem here? <laughs> As if that's some kind of vice. So it's, uh, I, I think some people feel a pressure to kind of get to the point of things, even though it's a novel, and presumably the whole luxury of that is you don't have to get to the point right away. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I agree. It doesn't change the content of what we write, but it definitely ha the changes in the industry have affected us all. Um, I write for an imprint of Simon & Schuster, which was in a similar battle with Barnes & Noble. Um, both sides, I think, had valid points, but um, as part of this conflict, our books were not uh, made available at Barnes & Noble, Barnes and Noble uh, during the publication of my fourth book. Um, now it's been resolved. Um, but, you know, the, there are these big business disputes, and I think part of it is because um, there's so many demands on our time. You know, it's, it's so hard uh, right now to get people's attention with a book. Newspapers are folding. Magazines are folding. Getting the coverage, getting the word out is tough. There's also self-publishing, and there are now e-books, which are very deeply discounted in some cases. You go on and you'll see 99-cent you know, terrific books. So um, it's, it's a little bit tough, but I think all we can do is keep celebrating our love of books, encourage young people to write, uh, to write and read, um, and there are always going to be books. People love books. I, I, I'm not fearful for the future of what we do, uh, but it is changing, so... Sure, yeah. sure. Yes, ma'am. I'm uh, just wondering how you feel about 
I, I, I just found in, in these times now, writers are being celebrities. And I work with writers as a publicist. And now they're required to be able to do readings and look a certain way, be able to do interviews. And you know, I've always been a reader. And in the past, I didn't necessarily know what certain authors looked like and didn't care. But now, I almost feel as if with some authors, it's more them and how they present or equal to the, the book. So how does that feel for you in terms of being a writer, which in the past you typically think more of an introverted person? How does that affect you now that, you know, it's, it's dependent on readings, more on interviews and being seen? How does that feel? Um, I think that, again, when you talk about the shift in publishing, um, for us now, a lot of, and I don't know what it's like before, I don't know, this is my first book, but uh, <laughs> now, uh, you know, our publishers want us to promote our work. And so it's up to you to put yourself out there. Um, it's a gift and a curse with the social media, right? Um, you get to connect with a whole different um, audience on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, right? Um, you, you grasp these readers. If you're more introverted, um, you know, it's great. You're on Twitter. You can kind of be there. But now, you know, there is this expectation. Readers want to know what you um, look like. They, they want to see certain things. So um, in order for you to promote your book and to, to be relevant, to keep it out there, to get the sales, and that's what we want ideally, right, um, you kind of have to be um, visible now more. Yeah. Look at that situation with J.K. Rowling's first post-Harry yeah. Potter book which she published under a man's name and, and purported to want to you know, have it so that no one ever found out who it was. And then that information, of course, didn't stay secret. And, and there are those who speculate that that was all part of this yeah. fantastic PR plan for uh, this book. But once people found out it was J.K. Rowling, it went from selling a thousand copies to, you know, a hundred thousand copies or something in, in two weeks. It's, interesting so you're right that they think this attachment of celebrity with authors it's one thing to have celebrity movie stars or celebrity sports figures but you know these are people who are supposed to be in their hovel you know <laughs> yeah and I actually didn't know we were supposed to be celebrities if you could see my minivan you, you would take that all back <laughs> well I, I think it seems celebrity but you know publishers just don't have the money and the resources you know if you're not uh, one, if you're not J.K. Rawlings, you know, they're not necessarily putting, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into your advertising. So you do have to be creative in what you do. And so I think it's a personal choice and how you want to, you know, if you're on your sixth book and you're already out there, you have an audience, you've built that, you, you, you know, you're a part of that. Um, I think maybe for some of us newer writers, um, we have to have a different approach. Uh, we know that uh, readers and young people, they're into this whole celebrity Thing. They want to see you, and so it, it may be easier for us to be more visible in that way, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm just a regular school teacher, so I'm not a celebrity at all. I don't have a question, but it's truly a delight to meet you, Ms. Booker. Oh. And I just want to say that it's been a Business in order dinner, okay? Oh, wow. Where each one of the sisters will know 
what is your final expectation? Wow. Number one, do you have life insurance? <laughs> do you have life insurance? And what are your arrangements? Wow. And then where are you we plan to put it in one safety mm -hmm. deposit box, okay? And they go from there. And that's what has inspired us to do. That's one piece of advice that I do uh, give to families when I do, uh, you know, radio interviews and everything. I always say, sit down and talk to your loved one. Know where your dad, uh, you know, know what he wants. Know what your mom wants. Um, that cousin that that they just call Lily or whoever, find out what their real name is. Find out who their sister is. Find out those addresses. Find out the social security number. All of those important things that you need to know just in case something happens. Um, a lot of people are left out there when their loved one passes away and they don't know any of the information. They don't know how to... Passing the hat. Yeah. And it's been a little bit too much of that. Wow. Well, good. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. You're giving you. a great gift to your family. If they have it, they know that, that what the intentions are. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have a question for Terry. I, I know you're very talented in the poetry because you do it at church. You're <laughs> ministry at um, Armin Temple. Um, is there, are there any plans for you to do a book of poetry? And what type of poetry would it be? Would it be spiritual or? Um, I have two bodies of work that are poetry. My first book I self-published many years ago. It's called One Woman, One Hustle. You can get that on Amazon. Um, I was a very ambitious uh, college junior back in the day. Um, and then I have something that's more recent. It's actually, it's called a book. It's a video book. It's this company called Book. Um, and they are actually, um, it's an app. You can get it for your iPad. You can uh, get it on your nook, any of those things. And it's actually, um, they're poems, but they actually have a video uh, at the chapter of each poem. And it's really, really neat. So you might want to check out some of those. So um, I think they're all inspirational um, poems. So uh, some of them may be a little racy. I don't know, but uh, most of them are uplifting. Another new tech term, a book. <laughs> you can get a book for your book. Question: I read your book and the Double Game, and I enjoyed it. It gets a thumbs up for my first read of the summer. Thank you. And um, I had never read a spy novel before, mm -hmm. and I was a little bit nervous because I was thinking it was going to be blood and guns and blood. Oh, no. But it's definitely it's, it's a thinking man's book, but it, it reads well and it flows well. Thanks. You said that you've also written books about Afghanistan and mm -hmm. Balkans. Mm -hmm. And is this your first book about the Cold War? And how do they differ those three time periods? Uh, it's the first book where a lot of it is set during on flashback during the Cold War. And uh, how do they differ? Well, all my books look at a lot of themes of loyalty, <laughs> betrayal, uh, you know, who can you trust, uh, as a lot of espionage novels do. But one of them was sort of a straight-up murder mystery set in the middle of a siege in Sarajevo, too. So um, they, uh, boy, how are they different? They're... I guess they're as different as any other experiences in life in those places and in those periods would be. And it's just, uh, but this was the one that is most of a straight-up spy novel and more of an homage, really, to all the other spy novels. Who would you recommend that someone who's never read spy novels uh -huh. read the next one? Read the next one. It, I would pick it by which, uh, actually, I think the one, there's one called The Arms Maker of Berlin, yeah. which is... Uh, it's set partly in the present, it's a historian, and partly during the Second World War, a young uh, teenage boy in Berlin 
whose father is, he's, he's an armaments maker for the German army. They make weapons and whatnot. And the son is trying to be more of a good German and falls in with sort of a resistance group during the war. And the rest of it is set in the present day of a historian trying to find the background of some things that really went on, not just with him, but with some other characters who are working in Switzerland for the United States during the war. And uh, I think you'd like that. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to finish up. We'll take one more question. Yes, ma'am. I have a question for anybody who wants to answer. How can you get unstuck? I'm, I'm trying to change a short story to a novel, and I don't know if that's going to be successful or not. And I've been told it needs more of a conflict. Yeah. I can't think of a good conflict. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, I've been watching movies. I've been reading similar mm -hmm. things, but I mean, I, I, nothing's really standing out to be like a true thing for me. So, mm -hmm. any. If anyone has a good conflict, they can lend this. <laughs> My three boys, probably. Um, one thing that I like to do is take books that I really admire and try to deconstruct them. Go through, and as you read each scene, write down a line about just kind of what happens in the scene. You know, he did this, he held up the bank, or whatever it is, right? And then you go through, and you can kind of see an outline of a really successful book. Um, and, you know, I think another thing would be you would have to determine was that what was what you're working on meant to be a short story or was it meant to be something longer? And maybe the resistance is coming from the fact that, um, you know, it's only meant to be a short story. Um, possibly not. Um, but uh, just, you know, that's another thing to think about. And I would take maybe the character in the short story and forget about the plot mm -hmm. and go somewhere else with that character. Think about what happens next for this character beyond this short story. Uh, there's plenty of conflict in life, and who are her friends, who are her enemies, or his friends, or his enemies, and, and where does this person's life go from this short story? And this short story could be a jumping-off point. It could be a point you have later in the book. Uh, you could build around it, but you don't necessarily have to expand just that story into a book. Mm -hmm. When you get stuck, you go to a mountain in South Africa. Yes. Right? <laughs> That's what I do. Right in the week. So, as we finish up, let me just ask each of you what you're going to read this summer. What are you reading now, or what are you planning to read this summer? Well, I'm excited to read about these two. So they're definitely on my list. There you go. Good. Dan, how about you? Uh, two of my favorite authors have books coming out this summer. One is a Japanese writer, Haruki Murakami, who writes very strange novels told in very plain language. It's an amazing combination. And the other one is David Mitchell, a British writer who has, he writes kind of strange novels too, but he writes in a lot of different voices and they're all well done. And so I always, it's like a surprise to see what in voice, what voice he'll write in next. So. Great. Sarah, how about you? Uh, so one book on my list is called After I Do by Taylor Jenkins Reid. We have the same editor who sent me an advanced copy and it's a story of a married couple who are going through some difficulties and they decide to take a year away from their relationship. They're not allowed to contact each other. At relationship, yeah. Relationship. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one thing that's really important is to support other writers. We've talked a lot about social media, and, you know, for, for all of us to, when you read a book you love, tweet about it, put it on Facebook, tell your friends, spread the word. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to do that with uh, books that I'm discovering now. All right, well, Sheree Booker, Dan Fessler, and Sarah Peckman, you guys have been a great time. Thank you all.